Hi, I'm Emmy Award-winning TV reporter Mara Skevelkampo, joined by Pulitzer Prize winner Wesley Lowry and former senior magazine editor Keith Reed. Today on Run Tell This, our continued coverage of the Chauvin murder trial of George Floyd. The jury heard opening arguments and the first witnesses took the stand in one of the biggest courtroom cases in U.S. history. Will there be justice for George Floyd? We're joined by criminal defense attorney and legal analyst Joey Jackson and the news director for BET.com, Wendy L. Wilson. For the next few weeks, we're going to be talking about one issue and one issue only, and that is the murder trial of former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin for the death of George Floyd. Now, this has been called the most important police prosecution in United States history, so we're going to be devoting a lot of time to that. So let's kick things off tonight with a little bit of legal perspective, and for that, we are joined by criminal defense attorney, legal analyst, and our friend, Joey Jackson. Joey, thank you for being here. Always, Mara. It's great to see you. So, Joey. As a layperson watching this, as a journalist watching, watching the coverage of the trial today, the opening statements and the testimony of the first three witnesses, this seemed to me to be open and shut. It seemed very clear, I think, that most people watching this would say that this, that this was murder, that this was, that this was criminal. Um, but of course, this is going to wind up in the hands of a, of a jury, and 12 jurors are going to make the decision. So can you walk us through what the charges actually are and what it's going to take for the prosecution to actually prove their case and get a conviction. Yeah, you know, without question. And a lot of cases, sometimes you look at, you say it's open and shut, but never as it relates to a police officer. And the reason, of course, is the prior history. You see instances where officers are not indicted when potentially they should be, right? And if they're indicted, they're not convicted. And so I think the eyes are on this to determine, will we reach that era of police accountability, right? It's like me two times up, right? When is there going to be the time where there's the accountability for the bad behavior? And so here we are with the marches that have been and more diverse than ever before of all races of all ages, will this be the time finally that an officer is not only indicted but convicted? And so even though the facts seem open and shut, the question is people who don't want to convict police, will they finally do it? The prosecution has three bites at the apple. And just very clearly explained, what happens with these three charges is you have this un, you, you have this unintentional murder charge, right? That's the murder in the second degree. And the reason I couch it by being unintentional, the prosecution doesn't have to establish premeditation. They don't have to establish intent. They merely have to establish that in the course of committing an assault upon George Floyd, the reality is that he died, right? So if you could establish that the underlying assault led to the death, guess what? That's what we call felony murder, and it nets you 40 years. But another bite at the apple now comes with the whole issue of depraved indifference murder, which is the murder in the third degree. And what that says is that if you engage in an act which is so depraved and so inhumane and so reckless that death results, it's problematic. And so that's the, that's the other charge, which is the depraved murder in the third degree, and that nets 25 years. And then finally, when it comes to manslaughter, manslaughter is just an issue of negligence. You're so careless, right? You're so grossly negligent about what you do. And, you know, as a result of that careless conduct, you have a death that results. And so this may be the time because of the three kind of boxes that can be checked. If a jury says, no, maybe it's not this. Well, it's not depraved because you 
no, he was not compliant and he could have come up or whatever, but isn't it at least negligent? And so I think they'll go through those three things. And at the end of the day, we'll see what the jury does. We're way away from deliberation. You talked about some pretrial stuff there, including the third witness that we, that we saw. The prosecution actually challenged whether or not this witness would be allowed to testify or whether or not the witness would be allowed to testify to his specific expertise as related to as it related to mixed martial arts vis-a-vis the chokehold or the or the knee on, on the neck the judge allowed that and that testimony to me seemed to seem to be pretty powerful what was your analysis of seeing that so my analysis keith is wow wow so let's talk about that for a minute so to your point there were pre-trial motions as to whether this witness, who happened to be a bystander, but was also a mixed martial artist, can testify as an expert. And so the prosecutors wanted him to testify as an expert. The defense wanted him just to be a fact witness. What did you see? When did you see it? What did you hear? What did you do? And the judge, though, said, no, 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 no. you're not going to be pre-trial. You're not going to be qualified as an expert. But here it was today that the witness was testifying as an expert. Expert. So if I'm the prosecutor, I don't care that the judge didn't permit me to have the, you know, a, a doctor after my name, a lawyer designation after my name, an MBA after my name, to call me whatever you want. But the net import of what he said was expert and it was compelling. Why? Because here's a layman who just happens upon the scene. He was a relatable witness, first of all. He worked with officers in as much as he did security and as much as in his mixed martial arts, there are other, other um, officers there. And so, you know, he doesn't have any type of bent or he's not out to get police, but he's expressing his concern. He's not responsive right now, bro. Does he have a pulse? No, bro, look at him. He's not responsive right now, bro. Bro, are you serious? He's going to just let him sit there with that on his neck, bro? And at the scene, he's saying, what are you doing? Stop, bro. You're killing him. Take his pulse. And so he was able to talk about chokeholds. He was able to talk about shimmying and getting a better kind of grip of a neck. He was able to talk about, you know, so these various terms that you use when you're wrestling and doing mixed martial arts that would be really expert. Uh, one was that the neck was diagonal across the throat, which on a, a blood choke, you would tack the side of the neck, you know, and which you're in a Kimura or, um, or side chokes or things like that, you want to attack the side of the neck to cut the circulation of the breathing from your person. And then to get the choke tighter, you hit different shimmies, which I felt the officer on top was shimmying to actually get the final choke in while he was on top to get the kill choke because a side choke or a blood choke can ultimately turn into death. And that's what we've seen here. And then what was really interesting, the kind of the icing on the cake, he was able even to to render a story where he talked about a fish and his son and filleting mm -hmm. the fish. But before the fish, the fish died. And they saw the fish die and it get, get its last breath and its eyes roll up. And he related that to George Floyd. The more that his the knee was blockly uh, on his neck uh, and shimmies were going on, the more you seen Floyd fade away and slowly fade away and like the fish in a bag you've seen his eyes slowly you know pale out and again slowly roll to the back of his eyes and he um so this is what i seen this is what i heard and that's how you know what it was like he was going through distress because of the knee and he vocalized it that i can't breathe i need to get up and i'm sorry and his eyes slowly rolled to the back of his head 
you seen the blood coming out of his nose. You heard him tell him, tell him before he stopped speaking that my stomach hurts. And those, most of the times, is the last bowel movement of your life. So from there on, he was lifeless. He didn't move. He didn't speak. He didn't have no life in him, no more. All in all, his testimony was damning. It was riveting. It was compelling. Uh, on that, Joey, what I found so compelling about him was this idea that it seems like a big part of the defense, or at least one component of the defense, is going to be talking about how out of control the crowd was, the sense of the officer himself perceiving he was in danger, that he was distracted, he couldn't, he, he couldn't pay attention or render aid or even really know what's going on with George Floyd under him because all this is happening around him. Is he breathing right, right now? Right. Check his How pulse. Have this conversation? Check his pulse. Okay. Check his pulse, child. Child, check his pulse. Child, check his pulse, bro. Bro, check his pulse, bro. You bogeys, bro. You bogeys. Don't do drugs, bro. What is that? What do you think that is? You so you call what he doing okay? Get back. You call what he doing okay? And it does again, kind of as layman. Although I've covered a fair number of these cases and trials and policing. It does, this witness does kind of strike against the portrayal the defense will want of the crowd. This is a very reasonable person, right? This is someone who is not just some crazy person off the street or the town drunk or the, some teenage. This is a guy going about his life with a level of expertise who's concerned by what he sees and steps in. And I was, I was wondering if you agreed with that. You know, I, I was reminded of, I was in the room when the officer involved in the death of Eric Garden, Daniel Pantaleo, he never went to criminal trial. However, he did have an administrative hearing that in NYPD operates as a trial. There's a judge, there's a, and the argument the unions made um, seemed very similar to what's being forecast by the Chauvin defense team that there might be medical issues, that this was really potentially George Floyd's own fault because of what his body was like, that uh, technical uh, um, and tactical debate was it really, in that case, was it really a chokehold? In this case, well, was his knee really on his neck or what was the training or X, Y, and Z? But then secondary, the sense of what did the officer perceive in terms of the danger and the hierarchy. In the case of Gardner, they, they were running out examples of times officers have been thrown through glass windows and so Pantaleo's on his back and so that's why he's scared. In this case, the sense of this building crowd, all of these people, they're yelling, they're calling them names. How do you think this witness we saw today and the other witnesses we saw today factors into that perception of the defense? And we heard in the opening statement, oh, well, the officers, you know what, there was this crowd and they could have been threatened by this crowd and the crowd kind of got their attention. And I think it's a diversion. Um, look, to be fair to the defense, they have a hard job. And as a defense attorney, I can tell you that's the area of life I live in. And you use what you have. But there are some things that you use where you lose credibility. And I think that making the argument that the crowd so distracted you or deflected from where your attention should have been, I think it's disingenuous. They're going to do all they can. You've seen the defense attack the issue of causation. It was uh, the heart condition he had. No, it was the fentanyl. It was the methamphetamine. It, it was, you know, COVID. Um, there are a hundred things that they'll point to, but what the critical point is, and it's so important to mention this, that you can make any argument you want from a defense perspective as to how really there was the death here. But all the law says is that if you show it was a substantial cause, the neck, right? The knee, the knee, the neck. If you show that that kneeling was a substantial cause, it's over. 
And so I think it's tough there. And then finally, Wesley, when you get to the issue of use of force, I, I didn't get the defense saying he did exactly what he was trained to do. Really? If he did what he's trained to do, we're all in trouble because I didn't, I mean, look, maybe at the outset you need to do what you need to do to get an officer or excuse me, the officer to get the suspect to comply. All right. I understand. But should there not be a reevaluation of is this technique? Okay. And am I doing what I need to do? And by the way, is he now complying? Is he in cuffs? Is he in control? And so the defense will continue to raise all kind of red herrings and flags and point fingers. It was the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker. But I, I think that they have a tough road ahead of them. And I think this may be the case that we see a conviction and we see a substantial jail term for the person at issue, the perpetrator, and that's Chauvin, the guy who used to be a cop. To that end, Joey, it's hard to imagine a circumstance where there isn't some conviction, especially considering that intent is not an issue here. So it's hard to imagine a circumstance um, where there wouldn't be conviction on at least one, if not all three of the charges. So what do you think is the most likely outcome here? In Minnesota, okay, and we could all Google and look and find out, there had never been a conviction of an officer for bad behavior. And that's really strange considering the things that have happened and now things that are being witnessed, except Mohammed Noir. And that happened a few years ago. And Mohammed Noir happened to be an African-American. And guess what? His victim was white. And a white also, woman. Guess what? Right. There was a conviction for the very first time of this black officer. Right. Who dealt with a white victim and he didn't mean to do it was the argument. But guess what? He's convicted. While we're talking about that precedent, the, where does the 27 million dollars come from? Because we know there was that settlement right on the verge of, of trial. This, the, the 27 million comes from the family of the person that Noor, Muhammad Noor shot got 20 million. And so the attorneys here said, hey, don't our lives matter too? And that's how they got to 27 million, but I digress. I think on the critical point, you know, but it all goes to the larger picture, Marv, what you're asking is what the outcome could be. There's no intent element that needs to be proven here. And so maybe though a jury says, ah, I'm gonna give him the benefit of the doubt because he's wearing a badge and he was wearing a uniform. So now we get to the other thing about depraved indifference. Isn't it a kind of depraved if your knee's on someone's neck and people are begging you to stop and you're shimmying your knee to you know, make it a little firm of a grip and the guy's like, I can't breathe, ma, my stomach, and people saying, stop. So now, can't we get at least that? And then if you don't get that, by goodness, wasn't he at least criminally negligent? I think we'll see a conviction as to something and that's not because I'm prejudging. It's not because, oh, I'm hating on the police. My dad was a police officer. May he rest in peace. I've looked at the evidence. I'm hearing it like everyone else. But in my deep dive already into it, I think there's going to be accountability here. As someone who covers these issues, police and criminal justice, very closely, and I have to admit that that actually often makes me a cynic in these cases. <laughs> I've covered hundreds of police shootings. And when people go, do you think there's going to be charges? I always go, no, 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 no. <laughs> uh, in the rare occasions where it comes to a trial, I you know, I would be, I'm always dispositionally surprised were there to be a conviction just because of what I know of the history. Uh, but one thing you noted was the amount of the civil settlement here. And that was, as you noted, indexed in part to the Justine Damon settlement. Um, but 
What's also interesting to look at is how much more it was than the settlements in many other cases you might think of as analogous. So I remember the 2014, 15, 16, the group of reporters who covered this kind of learned as a rule that our lives are worth about $6 million. That's where, right, right around there was where a lot of these settlements were coming in, be it Timmy Rice, Eric Gardner, Walter Scott. We're right in that five to six million range. Obviously, we're seeing a settlement much, much larger. I think for a lot of people who watched this video, they saw something on video that they thought was much more callous than some of the other videos they've seen, although certainly we don't want to start ranking them. But this was something that a lot of people objectively said they thought was, was terrible. Do you believe in the legal sense Right, because again, I'm asking this question as someone who is a little skeptical that there still might be a conviction or that, was this George Ford case, was it actually special this way? We've done this to ourselves before on Tamir Rice or Eric Gardner or Rodney King or whichever other cases. So you know what, Wesley, I don't think it was worse. And when I say that, you know, before people, you know, scream at their TV screens or their computers, what, I'm, what I mean by that is that every death is bad right? Every time you engage in an injustice, uh, it's a terrible thing. But I think this was something that was just so disgusting, so despicable, so vile. So are you serious, right? Like we all have that, are you serious moment? I just remember the first time I saw the clip on Twitter and I'm like, oh, okay, whatever. Is this real? Real? Is this true? And so I think people really gravitated towards that. And they said, wait a minute, you know, change going to come. Something has to happen. And I think it was a lightning rod in that regard, Wesley. And I think because of that, it really brought people together of all persuasions, of all ages, of all ethnics and all religions to march and say enough is enough. Joey Jackson, thank you very much for your time here. My pleasure. Thank Anything you, Joey. Sarah, all right. Anything listen, listen, you, you are my favorite person, not because only because you're so smart and you're so good at television and so good at your job. But I know if I ever get into trouble, deserved or not that's who we're calling. I'm calling you if i get one phone call it's to joey jackson i got you on speed dial you're my insurance policy well i'm never getting called because we know that you behave yourself the lies the lies here we go just all in public telling lies that ain't right so now we're joined by wendy l wilson who has worked for the editorial teams at essence ebony jet thegrio.com, so basically everywhere black that there is, and is now the news director of BET.com. So Wendy, come on and join us. We're so excited to have you, because as you all know, Run Tell This is a podcast for and by black journalists. And so- Hi, Wendy. Hi, everyone. You, wait, where are you? You look so fabulous. What, what, what lockdown world are you in? This is like that Janet Jackson video. This is back it is. Right? No, it's like the, it's like the weekend. My own school. little setup. So where she is. My she own is. setup. It's Wendy Weekend. I love it. And so, Wendy, thanks so much for being with us and for having this conversation. It's such an important news story. Obviously, the country is following this so closely, paying attention to it so closely. Uh, It's been said that this is the biggest trial, possibly, in the history of the country as it relates to Black Americans and police. Certainly the biggest going back to Rodney King, at the, at the very least, in the early 90s. Uh, but one thing that was struck me earlier today, and I think that this framing for our conversation is going to be so important, was listening to Reverend Sharpton talk about, he said, you know, Shaven is in the courtroom, but America is on trial. But make no mistake about it. Shaven is in the courtroom. But America's on trial. 
America's on trial to see if we have gotten to the place where we can hold police accountable if they break the law. And, and then when we got into the courtroom, there's an effort, certainly by the defense team, but even, even by the prosecution team, in some ways to say, no, 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 this is about the facts of the case, that we understand we're here for these reasons um, because of the big national implications of this case, but these are about the facts of this individual case. And so I wanted to start by asking you, what do you think? Is America on trial? Is the criminal justice system at large on trial? And how does that intersect with what is the trial of an individual former police officer? All right. So that's a great question. Um, I think that, you know, it, it's interesting because I've been thinking about how do we express this on BET.com as the news director there? What is going to happen if Chauvin is found innocent, essentially? Um, where do we go? as a people and as a country, Chauvin has to be found guilty for George Floyd to get justice. One has to equal the other. Otherwise, justice is not going to prevail and this country is going to be in disarray. We always tell our children, if you get into trouble, go to a police officer. I, don't, I can't say that anymore. I don't feel comfortable saying that to my niece anymore, who's seven. She thinks that police officers are the safe haven. Now I have to tell her that you might die if I send you to a cop. And That's the reality think, that we're heading into. Here's what I think is interesting about this case, though. I haven't heard anybody defend Chauvin's actions that day until today, until his defense attorney stepped up and said, well, it was the drugs and the crowd was overwhelming and it was, it was scaring them, et cetera, et cetera. In addition, we learned today that, as the prosecution put it, people were calling the police on the police. So this, in some ways, I do see as more of an indictment of Chauvin the individual because it was so indefensible. Nobody is able to defend this, but of course it will have much broader implications in terms of policing and, and, how, um, and how we move forward in that space. And remember, we saw Daniel Pantalero put that chokehold on Eric Garner. So this is not the first time we've seen a white officer kill a black man as a result- With his, with his bare hands, yeah. With his bare hands, right? And Daniel Pantalero right now is enjoying his dinner with his family. So first of all, I want to I want to step in here I, again. I say this all the time on the show. We believe in we believe in giving people their flowers. I have worked with you as an editor. I have worked with you uh, in uh, across multiple different publications. You are dope. I'm happy to be working with you again in, in video format. And thank you and thank you for being here. With that said, you know you know I was I was setting you up to to, to knock you down. But I want to I want to challenge. What is new? I want to. Yeah, I want to. It's it's it's, it's, it's what I it's, it's what I do. I want to I want to challenge a little bit some, something that you said in, in, in the idea that justice for George Floyd has to come in the form of a, of a conviction. Mm -hmm. um, I believe that's a that's a form of justice for George Floyd, but I think that justice for George Floyd looks a lot bigger than a conviction in this case. This is systemic. And so the point that I'm making is I don't, a conviction will send a message. I don't believe that a conviction fully represents justice for George Floyd because there are still going to be other George Floyds out there until we see some, some systemic change. So Chauvin gets convicted, but what does it say about the, the, the attitude in that department, in the training in that department, that none of those other officers intervened. None of them stopped. None of them tried to render aid. 
None of them pulled Derek Chauvin off. These men were okay with what was happening. They were more concerned about a peaceful crowd who had gathered on the sidewalk for the purpose of telling them that they needed to stop than they were about the, uh, about the life that was being taken right in front of them by, by one of their colleagues. Yeah, but if there's no conviction, then what? Then we're really lost. If, if this does not lead to a conviction on charges that have nothing to do with intent, you didn't have to mean to kill him to be responsible for his death. That's basically what these charges say. If this doesn't lead to a conviction, then it's open season. Police can do whatever they want but to how do many, whatever they want. But how many times have we said that already? How many times have we, have we said that already? We said that when Trayvon Martin was killed. We said that when Tamir Rice was killed. It's been open season for a long time. Earlier, you mentioned that there's something are you actually asked, right? What is special about this case? What is special about George Floyd and this circumstance? And I think it was just the, you know, the, the amalgamation of, of the pandemic, of people being out of school and out of work, the marches and everything that happened last year that, as you say, a number of people suddenly realized that there is systemic racism and, and police brutality in this country. We, in, on this platform here, have been reporting on this for years. So I'll be very honest with you. When George Floyd happened, I was like, who, what, when, what? It didn't faze me because it was yet another story that I have had to report on. It was yet another family that I'd have to talk to, another mother, another wife, another daughter who has lost a loved one. So it didn't phase until all of a sudden the rest of the country was phased. And so that's why I think justice here has different implications than any other case. Well, I've got a question about those implications uh, that kind of gets at the heart of this conversation we're having, which I think is a smart one and an important one. There are two Americas watching this trial, right? There's a white America and a black America watching this trial. And among white America, the polling would tell us many more of those people want to see a conviction than perhaps would have previously. We, we know who was out in the streets in the last year, and it was a lot of white Americans, too, who, who had their eyes opened, who said, this is my line in the sand, X, Y, and Z. I wonder, and this is counterintuitive, and I, and I phrase it as a question because I don't know, but part of me also wonders, if there is a conviction in this case, do those people go, all right, we solved racism, we're good. Like, we did it. We got justice for George Floyd. We marched, and it happened. And by the way, do they start thinking that it's because they marched, right? Well, all, all they all needed all those years was the white people in the streets, and they would have been convicting officers for years, right? Like, what does, what we talk a lot about, a lot of our framing of conversations, what happens if he is not convicted, right? And, and, and to be clear, I think part of that is, as Black Americans, bracing for a trauma to come, now, I think for white Americans, a lot of it's, are they going to burn stuff down again? <laughs> what happens if he is convicted, right? D does d sometimes the, the illusion of progress can become an impediment to progress? And, and is there any risk of that? Yeah. Well, I think you raise a great point because it's much easier to support a conviction for one officer in this very, very extreme case than it is to do the work of dismantling systemic racism, of addressing inequalities in education and in housing and in home ownership and in all of the other ways that we see these systemic inequalities play out. So yeah, I think it does run the risk of, you know, checking that off the box, problem solved, police brutality, problem solved, Derek Chauvin's in jail forever, yay, <laughs> like we can move on to the the next thing where these problems of course are much much bigger than it 
And that is why I, I wanted to make the point about justice not being found in a conviction. Justice in this, in this instance is not a conviction. A conviction is the machination of the criminal justice system working as it's supposed to work, which is what the Black Lives Matter movement has been saying since the very beginning. We're not asking for anything extra. We're simply asking for the criminal justice system to do what it always does. It's remembering that this happened to dozens and dozens hundreds of other people who look like George Floyd before Derek Chauvin ever put his knee on a neck for five seconds, let alone eight minutes. Justice is a bigger issue that requires not taking your foot off the gas. If the jury comes back in a couple of days or in a couple of weeks and, and says guilty on one of those three charges, like that's that in and of itself is not justice because it doesn't prevent this from happening to someone else. And I want to loop back around, and I think it's something we'll keep in mind, I know we'll keep in mind as we keep having these conversations throughout the trial. But you noted that for so many of us, for Black Americans, this is another story, another case, another video. I, I remember I didn't watch the George Floyd video for the first week or two because I've seen so many of them, and I, I wasn't convinced this would be one that, okay, five people on my timeline are upset about. Well, this is every day. I see a new, and it wasn't until things started rolling that I said, oh, people are taking this one seriously. Let me check in and make sure I know what's going on. But I, I've been thinking a lot today about Felonius uh, Floyd, Felonius uh, Floyd, uh, George's brother who I, I've interviewed and gotten a little close with over the course of the year. Um, and, and that's the role very often black journalists play is that you got to approach traumatized families and help them tell their stories and record their stories. And at the heart of that is the memory that this is a story about a family that's been broken, family that's been harmed right? That we're having a lot of, I think, really smart societal and legal conversation about what this looks like and what it means and what might happen. But also, this is a Black family that experienced an extreme trauma at the hands of the government. And, and that that trauma then transfers to so many of the rest of our families because we can imagine George Floyd as our cousin or as our uncle or as our brother or as our son right? In the same way we can imagine Breonna Taylor as our girlfriend or our mother or our niece or our, or our aunt. Can you talk a little bit, Wendy, because I know you, like all of us, have covered so many of these cases, have been involved in so many of these cases. After um, George Floyd happened last year, I did a mental Rolodex to figure out when was the first time I actually did one of these stories. And it was 16 years ago when Sean Bell happened mm -hmm. and I interviewed his widow. And I remember being that was young, essence at the time. Yeah, yeah. And I was a young-ish ish reporter then. <laughs> you know. 16 years ago, you were like 20, you were like what? Jeez, seven, it was like 19, seven, right? Eight, nine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, um, reverse engineer math. So she, was, so she I, was reporting at 12. Oh gosh. <laughs> trying to interview Nicole Paltry Bell and, and coming from a place of understanding and support and kindness and I would just remember my heart breaking in half because this woman was about to marry him. She hadn't married him yet. He was on his bachelor party when he was killed by the NYPD. Um, and so having their children, talking to her and their kids. And again, over the years, I have told this story time and time again, but it doesn't get any easier. And these families all go through such pain. For me, the most painful, quite frankly, was Botham Jean. 
And I tell you because he's a Caribbean young man. I'm from, my family's Caribbean as well. And so I saw in him my cousin. I literally saw someone who I was related to. And speaking to his mother, his, his father, I saw my aunt and uncle. And it just kind of broke me apart. It really did, did break me apart. And I know that I've kept in touch with the family since, you know, they are wiped out just because they've gotten some sort of verdict, just because they've gotten some money, just because the street has been named after him, they will forever be changed by the loss of this individual who literally was in his home eating a bowl of ice cream when he was shot and killed. We can't do anything. <laughs> that was what that said to me. We can't do anything without being targets. And even in that case, the sentence was, it was, it was very small, if I recall, yes. it was a few years. And she's trying to get out as it is. Of she's, course. She's and she got a Bible and she got a Bible and a hug from the judge, which was very kind of the judge. But I can't remember the last time I seen a black defendant get a Bible and a hug. Um, if I can just ask one final question. I had made an effort not to watch the George Floyd video and the news organizations, it seems, caught up with public sentiment and they stopped showing it because yeah. at first they were treating it like any other news video. Yeah. And then they realized how problematic that was and they stopped showing it. So watching it today during the trial was the first time I'd seen it in its entirety because I couldn't bear to keep watching the first time when I saw a grown man calling for his dead mother. That broke me because I'm a mother and I'm thinking of my child as a grown man in his 40s calling for me after I've left this earth and I can't do anything to protect him. So this is the first time I saw it in its entirety. And I, I couldn't stop thinking about this vicarious trauma of seeing these snuff films over and over and over again. It's like you said, we lose track, we forget the names. We're like, which one was that again? Which one was Philando Castile? Which one was this, which one was that? Although the video is extremely difficult as, as was the case at George Floyd's funeral and has been the case other times, you know, kneel down on your knee for eight minutes and 46 seconds and think about how long that is. And you're sitting there and you get to minute four and you're like, what in the world? But for me, I think what was difficult, we were talking earlier about the witnesses and how they were the one witness who'd approached one of the other officers and were watching and hearing this, you're choking, you're suffocating him, you know, check his pulse, right? It's so often in these cases, think about a trial, uh, that we see everything. The police so often say, you can't trust the video. It's just a quick 30 second snapshot. You don't know what's, when something goes to trial, the rare occasion where one of these goes to trial, we do see everything. And so often we start encountering other things that make something we already thought was horrific even worse. Now I can hear another officer ignoring pleas for the, right? That I've already made, not peace, but I, under, I know what's in those eight minutes or 46 seconds. But now we're gonna isolate a different part of it. Now we're gonna talk about this interaction that was happening in this, because you start to see again, that it's not just the actions of one officer, even if those, just those actions are what's on trial. You see how so many different things conspired together to take mm -hmm. someone's life. And I think for me, that's always really, really difficult, whether it's diving into the transcripts, sitting in a trial, uh, looking through a civil suit where now they have all the, when you can actually see the whole thing and you go, this wasn't, th this wasn't as bad as I thought it was. It was significantly worse. I've, I've had a policy for a number of years not to watch these unless I absolutely positively need to for, for work purposes. I don't intend on, on changing that policy personally, specifically to what Mara said. Um, 
I am a, a 40 plus year old black man whose mother is departed. And so it's very easy to, to see, and I've been pulled over, you know, God knows how many times, um, you know, and so it's very easy to, for, for me to feel that, that fear, that, that trepidation that, you know, like you, am I going to make it out of, out of this one? Um, situation. And I find a lot more value in what Wesley said about the little nuggets and the bits and pieces that come out at trial or come out as part of an investigation. I thought there was a lot of value in the dispatcher who, who testified today, who talked about, she painted a picture of a situation where literally everyone who observed this from any angle knew something was wrong. All of the onlookers knew something was wrong. Derek Chauvin and his colleagues who are, who are going to be tried are now going to have to convince the rest of the world that everybody else was wrong and they were somehow right. It's, I, well, <laughs> it's part of my job, unfortunately, the part that I don't enjoy um, to watch these videos and be able to um, ascertain as much fact from them as possible, um, to read the court exchanges, to um, just have a basic understanding of what's going on. To, for me, the most um, clear part of what happened uh, in the opening statements was um, understanding that this was a man who was a human being. Um, Donald Williams, who's the gentleman who is now being ascertained as the expert, the martial arts expert, the security guard, who was also just a bystander on the street, you could hear him saying, to Chauvin and the five officers who were called, five officers for one unarmed black man who had a fake $20 bill. Let's remember that, right? Five officers needed to, to, to handle that. When the music is loud in my neighborhood, I can't even get one, but five officers, amazing. But when Donald said, man, he's human to Chauvin, that, I felt it. I felt that because Chauvin didn't see it. None of the officers saw it. The, the move of putting your knee on someone's neck is literally like hog tying an animal. He wasn't human. He didn't see a human, but we saw our uncle, our dad, our cousin. We saw the humanity. And that was reminded in me today um, when we often get so, in, in, in our jobs and trying to get everything out. The humanity is what we cannot forget. Perfect, final word. Could, <laughs> drop the mic. Wendy, thank you for your time. We really appreciate it. You're very welcome. Hey, don't forget to subscribe and please leave us a five-star review. And the conversation continues on social media. Please follow us on Twitter and Instagram at RuntellThis underscore. Check out new episodes every Wednesday. Run Tell This is an independent production of Mara Scampo, Inc.